the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Let's talk about some battle lines being drawn that is comprised of entertainment, the Internet, Madison Avenue, social media, even institutionalized enemies of your beliefs and values, and it is a battle for the hearts and minds of your children. What can we do to be better prepared to wage or protect our children in the middle of this battle? Well, a look today at 30 Ways, 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And uh, joining me tonight is the author of this new book, former vice president of the Heritage Foundation, also serves currently on the board of directors for Dr. James Dobson's Family Talk, and a new book out tonight, again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family, newly published by David C. Cook Publications. And Rebecca Hegland, great to have you on the program. Hey, thank you. It's an honor for me to finally be on the air with you. Thank you. Well, you know, I think we as parents understand that there's a battle afoot here. Uh, The problem is really understanding how these battle lines are drawn, Rebecca, and I guess understanding, too, and you, you make this differentiation very early on in your book, that we need to be able to to divide in our mind the understanding that our battle here is not really with our children, though many parents would feel like that that's exactly who they're doing battle with. But in reality, the real battle here is with the culture, isn't it? Yep, that's exactly right. Um, You know, I wanted to provide a handbook for parents so they could face, um, you know, the world and trying to raise their children with character with some help. And one of the chapters in there is called Battle the Culture, Not Your Child. And what it encourages parents to do is just kind of sit back and reflect on the fact that, hey, it is adults that are designing the pornographic websites. Adults are designing the songs for 10-year-old girls. Adults are designing the raunchy music that so many children um, are being pummeled with. Your battle's not with your child. Your battle is frequently with adults who have a different worldview than you do. And they're vying for the dollars that today's youth spends. I mean, our children today are the most affluent children in the history of the world. And the fact that they, for the first time in many generations, um, have their own disposable income. And the marketers know that. And so they're after that share of the pie. And unfortunately, what they've learned how to do, there's also a chapter called Learn How Marketers Target Your Children, which is a study into um, how executives of a lot of these companies, MTV in particular, brag about not how they know what teenagers want, but they brag about how they've learned to manipulate the teenage mind. And so it's important for parents to understand this um, and then once parents read at least those couple chapters to sit down and go over them with their children, too, because then it becomes you and your child against the world. 
versus you against your child. And, you know, the and irony really is really important. For, for our parents, when they raised us, of course, the environment, uh, the culture and times in which we lived was very different. Today, I- these battles and the battle lines are being drawn in, as you're suggesting, Rebecca, in a number of different uh, arenas. I mean, it's not just Madison Avenue and the disposable income that your children have access to, and they're being viewed as all potential customers from uh, virtually the age of zero on up. But then, too, there are individuals out there that have a social engineering agenda that that uh, it really draws a battle line. And then outright exploitation, too. Yep, absolutely. I mean, in, in America, it used to be that the social institutions, by and large, came along beside parents and helped them. Um, today, you have a lot of educators, and certainly the NEA is is driving a wedge between parents and their children, telling parents they're not smart enough, that, you know, that they know better, uh, the teachers know better, that you don't really have any rights once your kids go in the schoolhouse door. And even the medical profession has changed a lot in the fact they used to help support parents raise children of character. I actually have a story in there about taking my daughter, who was 12 years old, for a sports physical, and the pediatrician female pediatrician actually, after she did the physical, asked me to leave the room because she said she needed to talk privately with my daughter. And I go through the story of how I said, "Uh, no, I will stay here for anything you have to say to my daughter. And the, the long to make a long story short, the point is that I did some research after that. And uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics is actually encouraging doctors to ask parents to leave the room so the doctors can talk to the children about sexual information. Um, And what the doctor was trying to share with my daughter is, hey, it's up to you to do what you feel. Um, Some people believe sex is, you know, only for marriage, but you get to decide that at 12 years old. Um, And so this is a book that really shows how the social institutions are um, undermining um, parents and families and what to do to fight back and how to do so joyfully, I might add. And, of course, that, that is key because at the end of the day, I think parents sometimes, you know, we're busy with careers and responsibilities that parents have to pay the mortgage and uh, pay tuition at school and, and do all of that. And then on top of it, trying to raise a child um, in an environment that is God-honoring with the kind of uh, values that we'd like to see passed on to our sons and daughters And sometimes I think parents grow weary in the middle of this battle, and all of a sudden now there becomes confusion. It seems as if we're battling our child, not battling the culture. So how do we differentiate between the two? And most importantly, how can we engage our child at a level in which we can really have not only effective communication, but also walk away with a sense that, uh, they're getting what we're trying to say, even with the so-called, uh, uh, you know, uh, gender or, or uh, uh, age gap. We're visiting today with Rebecca Hegland. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And when we come back, we're going to talk about an important key as we kind of go over some of the highlights of the book, including this notion that just like soldiers at war, we ourselves must commit to this battle on behalf of our children daily. Our conversation with Rebecca Hegeling continues right after this. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
And as we're learning this afternoon from author Rebecca Hagelin and the new book she's written called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family, it's not the battlefield for the heart and mind of your child. It's the battlefields, plural, be it media, advertising, social engineering, uh, those that would literally um, uh, prey upon your children in the arena of sex trade, pedophilia, even the pressure that they receive from their peers, all comes together to conspire against the parent who is really trying in this day and age to uh, train up a child in the way that he or she should go and uh, have love and respect and uh, live to a set of, of moral codes or moral values that you and your faith have established for your son or daughter. And, of course, one of the issues at play here is that, as I mentioned before the break, Rebecca, parents can get weary and tired, but this um, this is much like a real war, isn't it, in that the soldiers need to commit and recommit to this on a daily basis if we're ever going to have any chance of winning. Yeah, I call it purposeful parenting, and you really do have to get up in your heart every day uh, committed to this battle, because guess what? The pornographers don't start. The people who are teaching our children that they're just here by accident, you know, um, there's some advanced form of primordial ooze, they don't stop. The garbage on television or the internet doesn't stop. So what I did when I was a parent of three teenagers simultaneously, I started waking up with a simple prayer in my heart, which went something like this, and I've got it in the chapter on Commit to the Daily Battle. Dear Lord, please help me today, on this one day, to stand up for the principles that you've set for my family, to, to touch my children in some deep and meaningful way in their heart, so that I know that they know that I love them and I'm there for them and I have their backs. Just give me enough grace on this one day to be courageous and joyful, Lord. And and I can tell you, if you break it down day by day, you can do this. And you can find great joy because when you share truth with your children, you help them determine between truth and lies. Great joy and freedom comes from that. Um, you know, one of the other things that's really important in this daily battle, and I have a whole chapter on this too, is you don't make your house a no zone. It can't be, no, you can't do that. No, you can't do that. No, you can't do this. You have to be able to help your children make alternative choices that are fun and enjoyable for them. And again, this is about finding joy in parenting um, God's way. And it's actually woven all throughout every chapter on the book about how to do that. Now, it could be argued, well, uh, Rebecca, here's the challenge. Uh, There are so many arenas, as we've suggested, that uh, parents are battling today. My goodness, how could I ever hope to inoculate them against everything that's out there? And I guess that's the difference between uh, teaching them item by item versus equipping them with the ability to think on their own based on a set of moral guidelines and standards that would serve as the compass or the guidelines for them so that when they run into things that are not good and not healthy for them, be it the source of the Internet, television, social media, whatever, that they've got the capacity to be able to engage in some judgment call on their own. That's exactly right. I mean, the purpose of my book is not to tell parents to build walls around your children 
to protect them from the world. Number one, that's a bad idea. Number two, you can't do that. You do exactly what you just said. It's about developing in them an internal moral compass and showing them how to use it. Because your children are going out into the world every day. In just a few short years, they're going to be walking down that graduation aisle and out your door. And, you know, our children are not always going to make the right choices. But my husband and I determined they are going to know the difference between right and wrong. They're not going to live, leave our house wondering what is right, and they're not going to leave our house believing in all the lies that the culture is trying to teach them. And it makes them stronger, and it uh, makes them really protecting them from a lot of the negative consequences that their peers are going to be suffering. Um, if you teach them these strong moral principles when they're young and do it every day. And of course, that also takes some commitment on our behalf, doesn't it? I mean, it would be nice to say as a parent, well, here's this list of do's and don'ts that I've typed up. So just keep this in your back pocket. And whenever a question comes up, just refer to the list. I mean, it's, it's, it's more complicated than that, as we're suggesting. And I would imagine that in terms of helping them understand and, and create the ability to reason through and know the difference in the variety of ways in which they will be bombarded by all of these sources with the kind of tough choices that they have to make. And that, I guess at the end of the day, Rebecca, comes simply through time and interaction with our kids. You you can't do this by remote, can you? No, you can't. I mean, you know, the world will try to tell you, oh, don't worry, it's about quality time versus quantity time. You know, it's actually both. I mean, God gave little babies to moms and dads for a reason. It's because we are supposed to hold them in our arms and in our hearts and teach them what is true and what is not true. And you can't do that in just a few minutes a day. Uh, You do it over a lifetime. You do it by creating family time. You know, I've got a chapter in there on that, and that's what it's called. And I use the word create very deliberately because you're not going to find extra family time. You have to create it in today's culture. Um, You have to learn how to have meaningful discussions with your children. And I provide some tips that work for others um, that are in the book as well. And, uh, again, you know, when children are in a home where they know mom and dad are committed to them, where they understand, you know, where the boundaries are and what the foundation is, children, study after study reveals they're happier, they're healthier emotionally, um, they're less likely to be involved in drugs or sexual activity outside of marriage. There's just a thousand and one reasons why you should be engaged in purposeful parenting and and starting afresh and anew tonight if if you've not done that before. And going back to my notion that a a simple list of do's and don'ts is not going to cut it, is modeling important here so that as the child watches you make the decisions and go through just day-to-day household life and what it means to be a parent, and the child is watching you. Is it important that you're, you're modeling consistency in terms of setting the example? Yes, it's always important. I've actually got chapters there about helping to teach your children how to, to make good friendships, and uh, part of that includes, why don't you, mom and dad, take a few minutes to examine your own friendships? Um, your children are watching the friends you choose. Um, there's information there. You know, a lot of people worry about their kids dealing with peer pressure. Well, there are a lot of moms and dads that don't deal too well with peer pressure ourselves. 
And um, so there's information there, kind of look like a little workbook at the end of each chapter to help parents kind of get their own house in order and realize uh, that they do have to set that a good example. And your children are really, they're dying for you to do that. They're just waiting for you to step up to the plate and really practice what we preach. And, um, and, and again, a lot of joy comes from when you do that and live that way. And Rebecca, I would imagine they're probably watching a lot closer than we would suspect. In other words, the inconsistency of saying to a child, uh, it's not okay to steal gum, uh, you know, walking through the uh, the five and dime store. Does it even exist anymore? <laughs> it's not okay to steal <laughs> gum. So you're, you're trying to instill in your child the notion that it's not okay to steal. And then for your child to overhear a conversation between you and your spouse about how you underreported, uh, you know, some side income from your income taxes, they're they're going to catch on to those things, aren't they? Oh, they're totally going to catch on to those things. And, you know, when you tell your child, you get a phone call and you say, tell them I'm not here, and you think, oh, that's just a little white lie, a lie is a lie, and your children are learning from you. And they know that, oh, mom and dad tell me it's wrong to lie, but they lie to their friends. So it really starts with examining, you know, your own heart and home and, and mom and dad sitting down and, and realizing, you know what, if we've made mistakes, it's okay. We're going to start over. One of, one of the things I find um, that's so sad is parents of teenagers, oftentimes they'll hear me speak and they'll think, beginning, oh, it's too late. I've done it all wrong. And my, my answer to that is, as long as there's breath in you, there was there's always a chance to repair and restore and make stronger a relationship in your life. And along with that, um, our kids are looking for heroes. In a day and an age when there are so many anti-heroes out there, wouldn't it be nice whether you're starting when, you know, the kids are, are six days old, six years, or, you know, they're in your 60s and you're in your 80s, to be able to to have a son or a daughter say, Mom was my hero, Dad is my hero? Oh, my goodness, it's so important. Um, And again, I have another chapter on that because today hero is confused with sports star, right? Oh, yes. Or movie (laughs) star or recording star. And it's very important to teach our children what makes a real hero and what a hero is so that they can learn to do heroic things in their own life. You know, a hero is, is most often described as somebody who makes sacrifices on behalf of another. And uh, we need to teach our children that and find heroes in your own family to start with. Maybe you had a, a you know, a great-grandfather or grandfather who has who served in World War II. Or, you know, or maybe you have a friend whose son is a soldier in Afghanistan or something. Look for heroes close to home um, to, and tell their stories to your children and show them as role models you know, rather than that latest basketball star who's in trouble again um, for the way he's treated his girlfriend or something. Um, very important for our kids to understand that. Yeah, and, and helping them to understand the difference, as Rebecca points out. Uh, newsflash for a lot of kids and parents out there, Kim Kardashian's not a hero. Kanye West is not a hero. But there are plenty of heroes out there, and you can start to uh, influence your child in a big way to become a hero in their eyes as well. 
no matter when you start. And I think that's an encouraging message that Rebecca Hegelin has shared with us today. The book is called 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. And what's great about the book is it's it's pretty interactive. And um, a lot of the uh, sort of the backside to all of these uh, insights uh, are followed up on by Rebecca's daughter. And so you get a chance to kind of see the parental perspective, child's perspective, what all that means and how that dialogue, how that interaction, how that quality time can come about. The book, again, 30 Ways in 30 Days to Strengthen Your Family. It's author, our guest on this edition of Lifeline, Rebecca Heglin. Rebecca, thanks so much for your time today. The book, by the way, published by David Cook, available in bookstores throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com, as well as on Rebecca's website, theresurgent.com. That's the Resurgent. Surgeon.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Amongst all of the issues that are troubling Americans today, and it's a laundry list, terrorism, the economy, unemployment, housing, education, you know what I find interesting? That the number one reported concern amongst residents of the state of New Hampshire is substance abuse. Isn't that interesting? Substance abuse, their number one concern, apparently rampant, taking place, uh, particularly amongst kids. And, of course, when we talk about abuse and addictive behavior, uh, it, it comes in a very broad variety of forms. If I talk to you about addiction, I think a lot of our minds immediately have a picture in our mind of either the hobo on the street that has the alcohol addiction problem or maybe the individual that's, that's dealing with drugs and has a drug addiction problem. But growing percentages of Americans, in addition to dealing with sort of the traditional addiction, so to speak, have a variety of other addictions. And it can be as broad as not just illegal drug addiction, but legal or prescription drug addiction. Then you move into other categories. You think about it from a biblical perspective. There are people that are addicted to food, people that can be addicted to spending, gambling, things of that sort. As we talk about the broad level of addiction and addictive behavior in America today, and by the way, 30% of Americans, one out of three of us, struggles with a form of addiction of one sort or another, you would think perhaps the best place for these people to go would be the church, that the church could help them address their addictive behavior. I mean, after all, doesn't the Bible talk about all these topics? Well, it certainly does. And yet, sadly, The church seems to be ill-equipped. It it almost acts as if we're sort of out of sorts on this topic, and so we feel as if, well, if you come to us with an addictive behavior, we immediately need to give you a referral to AA, uh, Narcotics Anonymous, something of that sort. But could we change the face of addiction if we changed our attitudes about what addiction is within the church? To get some insights now, Jonathan Benz joins us. Jonathan is a clinician. He is a certified professional who serves the recovery community. He is the author of a new book called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction. Jonathan, thanks so much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you for having me, Craig. What about this observation? From your perspective, is that a fairly legitimate claim to say that largely the church seems to be kind of awkward at dealing with this topic? I think your comments are spot on, and that's certainly my experience. Uh, having uh, been blessed enough to, to be to have been raised in a home and a congregation that was remarkably recovery friendly, when I started going out on my own, 
and doing uh, both clinical work and work in the church, discovering that while for decades uh, churches have allowed AA and NA meetings to take place in basements and fellowship halls, most of those people who go to those meetings uh, would not grace the doors of the church for any form of worship or, or participation in Christian community. And I think that's largely due to the shame and the stigma that oftentimes addiction carries in the church world. But that's odd, because as I delineated, you know, when we think of addiction, let's, let's apply the, the more broad definition to it than what seems to be kind of the, the, the narrow traditional approach. Most people, if you say addiction and, and do a word association game, will, you know, say alcohol, drugs, things of that sort. And yet, as we know, both from a scriptural standpoint as well as a clinical standpoint, that there can be all kinds of other dangerous, addictive behaviors. I mean, there, there are uh, ministries now that are dedicated to do nothing but helping people, for example, that struggle with uh, sexual addictions uh, or gambling addictions. So it seemed to me that, that given the broad nature of this behavior and the fact that <laughs> the Scripture has an awful lot to say about all of them, that if there's any place where we ought to feel welcome, if it were an, an addict ought to feel welcome, it ought to be within, within the Church. Well, and one would hope. Uh, it, you know, it's interesting that the American Society of Addiction Medicine defines addiction as a chronic disease of brain reward, motivation, memory, and circuitry. And when the medical community defines addiction, drugs, alcohol, gambling, those things are not mentioned. Those are but symptoms of something else that's going on. So we know that there's something that's happening physiologically in the brain of the individual, and I think sometimes that's the part that uh, we in the church community uh, don't get or don't fully understand. Uh, We think that addiction is something that can be prayed away. And while certainly uh, I believe prayer helps in some form of prayer and meditation, we know through science now definitely helps the brain heal, uh, it takes more than just prayer and Bible study for a person to heal and recover. Uh, it takes some form of medical treatment as well. To a certain degree, then, are some of those behaviors, uh, let's take alcohol. And we know certainly there's a physiological aspect to that addictive behavior, drugs too. Uh, but, but to a great degree, is that oftentimes, and as I think you're suggesting, Jonathan, symptomatic of something deeper going on? Uh, oftentimes, uh, addiction experts will say drugs and alcohol are but a symptom, or uh, sexual compulsivity is a symptom of something deeper going on. Now, we, we do know in the case of alcoholism, science tells us that there's a genetic marker for alcoholism. And, you know, we don't quite know if there's a genetic marker for sex addiction yet. Maybe we'll find at some point that there is. But uh, sometimes it's a chicken or egg uh, discussion, you know, which came first. And I often say it doesn't matter whether uh, something of trauma happened that got the person into addiction or they had a genetic marker that led them into addiction. Uh, we we got to treat it. And, uh, and we want to treat more than just the symptoms. We want to treat the deeper issues of the psyche or within the Christian context, we would say the soul or the spirit. Now, the church, of course, would typically look at many of these on that laundry list that we mentioned a moment ago and say that, well, the answer, of course, is Christ, and we can help an individual by leading he or she to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and once they start attending church, going to Bible study, things of this sort, 
that uh, most naturally then that that life-changing experience that encounter with Christ should then address the underlying issues regarding their addiction and so once they've been able to then um, through a process of prayer and counseling things of this sort overcome that addiction that they should be done in other words there should be no need for ongoing uh, recovery workshops or things of this sort we oftentimes even hear something well people you know that once they get through their addictive behavior then they get addicted to recovery is there something wrong with that approach well, I, I think if we take that approach, then we should do the same uh, with other diseases, with other disease states. We certainly would never tell the cancer patient to stop her chemotherapy, or we would never tell uh, the diabetic to, to stop uh, his insulin or watching his sugar levels. Uh, we know that there are certain disease states that are chronic, and apart from some kind of miraculous uh, touch or, or miracle of science, the person will continue to have to treat that for the rest of their life. Uh, so, uh, you know, some people, uh, they struggle and they say, well, it's a sin to be an alcoholic. Well, if that's the case, then perhaps it's a sin to be a diabetic. Uh, you know, we don't stigmatize people who suffer from other disease states that are often characterized by relapse. Um, yet with addiction, we, it is one of the most undertreated uh, issues in our country and one of the most deadly. And I think the beauty of the church, when the church wakes up to the realization that, yes, we hold a lot of answers for spiritual healing, for psychological healing, when we practice that with good medicine, that a person can really uh, increase their chances of finding a life that is happy, joyous, and free, as the big book says. Uh, I think when we, when we really grab hold of that, we can begin to see greater transformation in people's lives in our congregations and also create an atmosphere where it's easier for people to talk about these issues that maybe they would be ashamed to even confess. Well, and maybe then, too, the approach needs to be with the understanding that an individual that is struggling with an addiction, while we kind of traditionally think it as an individual who is weak, who doesn't have the, the kind of um, will or... Uh, uh, um, ability with them to, to push themselves back from the table, the drug, the alcohol, whatever, but rather to recognize that in our fallen condition, we are vulnerable to sin. And it is a day-to-day -day struggle. I mean, if Paul had to struggle daily to die to the flesh— and I, I think Paul, both in terms of, of his encounter with Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus— and the role that he played in the in the early church, uh, probably a little a little closer, a little deeper understanding uh, of these principles than just the average Christian out on the street who just casually reads Paul's writings. Uh, that if we acknowledge the fact that it's a day to day struggle, and that in and of ourselves we are powerless, but through Christ we can overcome this, and, and recognize the fact that it's not necessarily just somebody who's got a weak character, but but rather it's part of the daily struggle to the flesh. Maybe then this sort of stigma that's attached to addictive behavior by the church would be less so, and as a result, people would be more willing to find the kind of help they need within both Scripture and the church. I, I would concur, and you know, I would go on to say, uh, I would go on to say what I'm not saying. And what I'm not saying is that there are not uh, what we would call simple consequences of addiction. So if if the mother, uh, you know, needs a handle of vodka because she's alcoholic, and she drives to the liquor store, and she leaves her child in the hot car in the car seat, uh, and turns the car off uh, to go in to get her alcohol. 
and, and the child dies, is that a sin? Definitely there are what we would call within the Christian context sinful consequences, or definitely harmful behaviors, destructive behavioral patterns. Uh, but, but I think we have to reframe the conversation, as you're saying, to say, yes, we know that there are these behaviors, there are, pattern, there are patterns of behaviors, and that really uh, there are principles, spiritual principles in the Scriptures that can help you break free from those destructive behavioral patterns that actually propagate the addictive cycle in your life. Jonathan Benz is with us tonight. We're talking about the recovery-minded church, loving and ministering to people with addiction. We'll take a brief time out to come back to more of the conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we are back with a pretty tight schedule tonight, but we'll see if we can't uh, jump a caller here or two for Jonathan Benz. His new book is called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly released, by the way, by... InterVarsity Press. You can get it at bookstores around the Bay Area, of course, through uh, the recoveryplace.com. Uh, Jonathan, let's talk some specifics. When we talk about ways in which the church mm-hmm. can do a better job, aside from simply saying, let's open up the church basement and allow AA to hold meetings there, what, from your perspective, do you think the body of Christ can be doing that will create the kind of environment that will allow addicts to feel welcome, number one, inside the church, and then what kind of tools do we need to be equipped with in order to really adequately and, and, and appropriately minister to them? Well, I think education is a great place to start. Uh, if, if there are, uh, for example, lay leaders in the congregation who have uh, this kind of passion or who have a particular compassion for people struggling with some kind of addiction, uh, just getting good information uh, and changing the tenor of the conversation within the spiritual community helps. Um, I think being clear that in, in saying and intentional in our message and saying, hey, we want you here. We don't have all the answers but we're going to help you find the answers that you need, and we're going to journey with you and uh, be on this journey with you to find what you're looking for. And if we can't find it here, we're going to help you find it somewhere. Uh, I think that's what a lot of people are looking for uh, who are struggling with addiction. They don't know where to go. And so there are even practical things that congregations can do. One of the most practical things I say is have a list in your foyer or in your lobby of your church that is a list of uh, community resources not just numbers for the, the AA intergroup, but also uh, therapists that you work with or believe in, or treatment centers, or different options, so that people can know that they don't have to do this on their own. Uh, and uh, oftentimes the best thing we can do is point them in the right direction if we don't have the answer. And of course the irony is, based on just some of the, the broad definitions that you've shared with us tonight, I think uh, many pastors would maybe uh, be surprised to find out that many of these so-called addicts are sitting in the church pews right now. Now, they, this may not be the guy that has, you know, the mainline heroin addiction or is, is, you know, diving into a bottle of vodka every night, perhaps not at the extremes, but there's all kinds of, of signs of addictive behavior uh, that can have negative consequences on your, certainly your spiritual health, your relationships with your spouse, your children, etc. So it would seem to me, when you talk about 30% of Americans that deal with one degree of addiction or another, that a good percentage of them are already in the pews, and this kind of addictive behavior is going on. Addressed. Well, you know, what, what about the woman who can't go to sleep at night without uh, her two milligram uh, Xanax, which on the streets is called a Xanny bar? Uh, but if you get it from the uh, pharmacist, it's called a two milligram tablet of Xanax. 
or the man who has to take his oxycodone uh, to get to work and has to take it throughout the day because of his car wreck and he can't function without the painkillers. Uh, you know, these are very uh, powerful narcotics that our doctors prescribe and oftentimes we have people sitting in our pews who have become dependent on these uh, medications, these narcotic medications, and can't get off and don't know where to turn. Is part of the, the first step here to start destigmatizing a lot of this? Because you say addiction, and that, and that sounds like somebody has just got this, uh, you know, deep, dark, evil, ugly secret. And yet, you know, when we start to look at some of these definitions, we begin to realize that this is more widespread and more common than we realize. Yeah, I think one of the places the church can start is to uh, really have a, an honest discussion about the difference between guilt and shame. And we like to say, you know, guilt, guilt is when I feel bad about what I did, but shame is when I feel bad about who I am. Now, if we believe what St. Paul wrote, as you said, that we are new creations in Christ, we are not bad. We are, we are good people who are struggling sometimes with some bad things. And so separating identity from behavior is very helpful in destigmatizing addiction. So saying to the person, you know, you might even want to say you're a person with addiction. I work with people who they can't handle that label of addict because it's too self-defeating for them. Other people are okay with it. Uh, you know, say, well, you're a person with alcoholism. You're a person whose drinking has taken over. Separating the behavior from actually who the person is uh, is what the church can help with in terms of the spiritual healing process. Sometimes, of course, the big challenge here is just coming to grips with the face of who we really are. You know, there's that mask that I think we not only put on in, in, in front of others, but sometimes even that, that mask is apparent in the mirror, isn't it? We kind of fool ourselves. Well, uh, we, we like denial, and I think it's human nature. Um, I think it's the ego. I think it's the sin nature of the flesh or whatever you want to call it. We like to think that uh, we're, we're doing okay, and sometimes it's hard to take an honest look in the mirror to say, uh, to really give an honest inventory of, of how, I, how I really am doing. Let's slip a call or two here uh, real quick before the end of our conversation. We're going to jump over to Oakland and say good evening to Eleanor. Eleanor, come on in with your comment or question for Jonathan Benz. Hi, good evening, gentlemen. And first I'd like to say I really am thankful that you're having this conversation. Um, I just have a comment and maybe a little bit of a question. My comment is that several years ago I started a uh, substance abuse recovery ministry in my church. But first, before we actually got the group started, uh, we actually partnered with uh, our local mental health association. And we actually got uh, professionals to come in and give us an overview about um, the pharmacology of addiction as well as the sociology of addiction. Once we got that information, I was able to talk with my pastor, get him on board with it, and actually um, the members of our recovery group came basically right out of our congregation as we began to do it more and more and months passed by. We were able to even invite some of the family members of people who were uh, in recovery. And we also used Bible, and we also used prayer, and, and um, just a number of different things. So uh, how do you think about uh, churches 
partnering with other churches and partnering with other um, uh, community uh, mental health associations. Some really good questions, and it sounds like you're doing some really good work there, too. Jonathan, what do you think? Eleanor, I love it. Yes, yes, and yes. That, that was a great approach. Uh, well done in partnering and bringing in good information to the congregation and also working with your pastor. You know, oftentimes we don't deal with things in our churches until there's a felt need. So when there's a crisis, we then respond. Uh, and so including the leadership and saying, hey, uh, you know, we're not a, a silo here. We're not a reservoir. We're a river. And uh, we're going to allow the information and the healing to flow. And sometimes we got to partner with other people to provide optimal healing for our parishioners. And, you know, there's so many organizations out there that you can partner with so that you don't have to sort of do all the heavy lifting and, you know, reinvent the wheels, so to speak. More and more churches, for example, are, are discovering uh, the ministry of Celebrate Recovery, uh, and, and that has been exploding, perhaps not as fast as we'd love to see, but that's been exploding across the country. So this idea of whether you're partnering with another congregation or, or taking advantage of some of the resources, as uh, Eleanor just mentioned, that, that already exist to say, hey, what can we do to be more effective in our local ministry? And I love the fact that they recognize, gee, we've got some folks right here in our congregation that are already struggling. We appreciate the call tonight, Eleanor. Uh, Jonathan, I know we've just kind of scratched the surface here this evening, but for for others out there that are eavesdropping on the conversation, heard what you've had to share, heard what the caller just had to share, where would you recommend they take some, some important first steps? Well, I think we have to ask. Now, I always tell people, be careful who you tell your story to. Not everyone has earned the right to hear your story. So when you go for help, make sure that you're going to someone who you are somewhat confident that they can help point you in the right direction if they don't have the answers themselves. So hopefully your your pastor or an elder in the congregation or a lay leader or a therapist or someone in the community, uh, you know, but first you have to ask. Uh, and that, that's what we all have to do. When we're recognizing that we have a problem, we have to ask for help. If we don't ask for help, we'll never uh, get the help that we need, that we so desperately need. And, of course, in terms of resources, I mentioned Celebrate Recovery, and also a copy of Jonathan's new book might be very helpful to you, too. It's called The Recovery-Minded Church, Loving and Ministering to People with Addiction, newly published by InterVarsity. You can get it on uh, the web, of course, The Usual Suspects, Amazon.com, local uh, bookstores, and RecoveryPlace.com. That's RecoveryPlace.com. And our thanks to Jonathan Benz for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn. 
With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.